Today we get to start a new series, and it's a new series that I've called Together. You know, the start of the year, I think, just gives us a wonderful opportunity to, to unite ourselves as a local church and to really, for me, to share on behalf of the pastoral team just some of the things that we really feel the Lord putting on our heart. And this series, for me, has been brewing in my heart for at least the last six months, different things that I really believe the Lord wants to speak to us about that I've put together and entitled the series Together. So next week, we're going to be looking at what it means to be together in mission, the priority of us winning souls, the priority of us being a local church that are committed to brandishing the gospel and actually taking it out in care and proclamation to Sydney. The week after that, we want to look at together in giving, the importance of giving. You know, our giving as a local church was fantastic last year, and we praise God for that. But this year, it's going to need to keep increasing, otherwise we won't be able to keep pace with the growing church. And so we don't want to just say, hey, could we give more? That's never the way we want to approach it at this church. We want to teach and allow God's word to minister in your heart so that you can discern and so that you can decide what the Lord is calling you to do. The week after that, we want to look at together in battle. Here's something that I'm believing ever increasingly as a local church. It's not complicated. Satan, who exists, hates our church. And Satan hates your families. And Satan is doing all he can to bring your families and this local church down. And I think it's something as a local church we're profoundly naive to. It says in the Word that we need to be be alert to his schemes. And I don't think we necessarily are being vigilant to his schemes. And so I want to address that. And I want to seek to do my role as a pastor to protect you, both doctrinally and as a congregation, so that we be aware of his schemes so that we can stand firm, as it says in the end of Ephesians, against his schemes together as a local church. And then in week five, I want us to look at together in prayer, the importance and priority of us praying, being a people who love the Lord and therefore go into battle together, but do so on our knees. And to start the series then as an introduction, but as also a topic in and of itself, I want us to look at together in life. The joy that we have as a local church to be together in life, to actually do life together. And so we're going to read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through to the end of verse 22. It's written by the Apostle Paul, relates into us being together, and this is what he says. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, we thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the way it is active. It still speaks to our hearts and speaks to our bodies today. And so, Lord, would you have your way amongst us? Lord, both today and over the next five weeks, would we, would we realize that we are being addressed by you? When we gather around your word, primarily it's, it's your voice of direction and clarity we're hearing. So, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes for each and every member of Sovereign Grace Church, each and every visitor to Sovereign Grace Church. Would our eyes be open to your word? 
and would our lives be changed by the glories of your word. Lord, help us. Amen. Now, the winter of 2004 is one that I will never forget. It was a particularly cold one. We still lived in Wales at that point. I was still um, the executive pastor of the Sovereign Grace Church there, Christ Church. And it's a Christmas and a, and a winter that I'll never forget because it was not only cold, it was the year that the Christ Church Center's heating broke down. It was a nightmare. We had 120 people about to gather for Alpha on the evening of this Tuesday. And on the Tuesday morning, we arrived at the Christchurch Center, a thousand-seater auditorium, and realized it is very, very cold. We try and turn the heating on, and the whole thing just blows up and oil goes everywhere. It was a problem in the engine room. So we've just got this massive room that was freezing cold. And so we wondered, what are we going to do? 120 guests to an Alpha course. We ain't calling it off. We'll just find out. We'll be like candles if we need to. We want to make sure people come out so that they can hear the gospel proclaimed. And so we're running around thinking of different things. The engineers come out for the heating. And our caretaker, caretaker just says, listen, I got it. I got a plan. Just leave it with me. Go, go prepare the message. I'll work everything out. So I said, oh, okay, well, okay, let's give that a go. So I went upstairs and proceeded to get the message ready. And the caretaker went into the room. And I had no idea what he was doing. Until four o'clock that evening, four o'clock in the winter in the UK, it gets dark. So it's pitch black. I go into the thousand-seater auditorium. It is pitch black, and I notice two things. I notice, first of all, it's still very cold in the room. It's freezing cold. And number two, I notice there is a little red light in the far distance of the room. And as I approach this red light, I come into contact with the smallest fan known to mankind. It's about this big with one little red light. All it's doing is this. It's giving it everything for Jesus. If this fan could speak, quite clearly this fan thinks, I've got this. You know what I'm saying? I know it's a big room, but I've got this. Just give me time. I just need a bit of few minutes. And, and this fan, if it could have come to life for a moment, I would have loved to have talked to it. This is how I think as a preacher. If I could have engaged with this fan, I would have said, what are you doing? And I think I would have, would have heard from this fan is, I've got this. I'm heating the room for Jesus. You know, this fan clearly was displaying passion in this moment. This fan was clearly displaying, I've got this all over it. But this fan, rest assured, did not have this at all. This fan had been given a task that it simply could not do by itself. There is no way that this fan was going to achieve what it was seeking to set out to do. Well, the reason why I bring that up as an illustration because in the same way that that fan had been given a task that it simply couldn't do by itself, I submit to you, so have we. As Christians, we've been given a task by the Lord, a great task, that in all honesty, we simply cannot do by ourselves. See, our great task is taught us around in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. For three chapters, three long chapters, the Apostle Paul takes the time to tour us around our great task. It starts in chapter 4, verse 1, when he tells us that we're called to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. That's massive. He's just spent time in chapter 1 and 2 touring us around the gospel, touring us around what it means to know that before the foundation of the earth, he chose you. And then at the right time, he adopted you into his family and he redeemed you. And he reconciled you and justified you. Do you know that heaven is your home as a Christian? 
that he's now made you right with the Father. You're now a child of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That's all the things he's touring us around at the start of Ephesians. He's literally showing us around the gospel and helping us see that you are alive in Christ because of the gospel. And then in chapter 4, he simply says, now live in a manner worthy of it. In light of the reality that you're a child of God, in light of the reality that you've been adopted, in light of the reality that you're now right with God, live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. And for three long chapters, he then tours us around what that means. Reality is that it means that having been chosen by the Lord, we're now called to pursue holiness. We're called in and through our lives to become more and more like Jesus Christ. In the Bible, it's called progressive sanctification, the process whereby God and us work on helping us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. We're called within that same vein to play our parts in the building of the local church. As we're connected in and knitted together in a committed and connected way, we're called to play our parts so that the child can build it, church can build itself up in love in Christ. And we're called throughout all of our lives and in every area of our lives to apply the gospel in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workload, in our speech, in our bodies, in the way we behave. We're called to ever increasingly become like Jesus Christ and to ensure that in the way we do that, we build together in unity and we offer to the outside world a shining light in the context of the church where people see and realize you're different. I see what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You're different. As a Christian, we have been given an incredible task to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. And yet what I love about this chapter, chapter 2, is it's in these verses that we read out at the start that prior to Paul touring us around this great task, he tours us around a great means, a great means of grace the great means of grace that will help us to become more like Christ, that will help us to live out our high and holy calling. What's that great means of grace? Ephesians chapter 2, each other. The greatest means of grace to seeing us achieve the great task is, is each other. It's one another. It's the people in our lives. That's why he says in chapter 2 verse 19, we were once foreigners, strangers, Aliens, uninterested in the Lord, uninterested in one another, but not so anymore. Now you're fellow citizens, members of the household of God. He's giving us imagery, helping us see. You were once far off one another, but now it's different. You're fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Why? Well, because God knows that if we're going to make it, if we're going to achieve that which he's called us to, if we're going to live in a manner worthy of the calling received, then you're going to need people in your life. You're not going to do it by yourself. See, if we truly want to live for Jesus, then quite simply, we need each other. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. Charles Wesley once said, there's nothing more, there's nothing more unchristian than a lone Christian. And he's right. It just doesn't make sense. If we're trying to do the Christian walk by ourselves, we're doing something that's so different to what the Bible suggests and what the Bible encases all the way through it. The Bible has people becoming Christians who are once strangers and aliens to one another, but now members. 
fellow citizens, household of God, connected and committed together so that they can achieve the great task that God has called us to. J.I. Packer writes about it this way. He says, We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotions. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is fellowship. And theologian Bruce Milne says it this way, The Christian life is inescapably corporate. Teaching on Christian holiness is frequently concentrated almost exclusively on the holy man or the holy woman to the neglect of the biblical concern for the holy people or the holy church. The ideal of the old competent Christian, able to meet every spiritual challenge and live a life of unbroken sin, has undoubtedly produced remarkable examples of Christian character. But as every Christian counselor knows, this emphasis has driven many to a lonely struggle, ending in despair or disillusionment, or even worse, the hypocrisy of a double standard lie. This whole approach needs re-examination. The bulk of the New Testament teaching on the Christian life, including major sections on holiness, occur in letters to corporate groups, to churches. All the major exhortations to holy living are plural. Similarly, all the New Testament promises of victory are corporate. In other words, the apostles envisage the Christian life and Christian sanctification in the context of loving and caring fellowship. My friends, we can't enforce and encourage any more the reality that Christianity done properly for the glory of God is together. It's with one another. If we truly want to live for Jesus, which is the call of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, then we have to understand that we need each other, which is the call of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. If we truly want to live for him, We truly want to carry forward the great task. We need each other. And that's why at Sovereign Grace Church, we are very deliberately a place built with small groups. See, genuine biblical fellowship, I'll give you a clue, genuine biblical fellowship can't happen by yourself. It's It's just unbiblical. You know, when I'm by myself for any length of time, and somebody says, you know, where do you think you need to grow? I don't find too many areas at all. You know, am I humble? Oh, yes. I'm by myself. But as soon as I get with other people, I find that I'm not humble at all. I'm irritated by what they're saying. I'm a little angry by what they're saying. I'm not even sure I even like you anymore. You know, when you gather with other people, you realize self-righteousness lives well in my heart. But when I'm by myself, oh, Jesus, it's me and you. Everybody could just be like me. It just doesn't work by yourself. Biblical fellowship just does not function by itself. But likewise, proper biblical fellowship, the one and others of Scripture, don't really work with 100-plus people either. Okay, Facebook is not biblical fellowship, just in case anybody wonders. It's not biblical fellowship. Whatever you say on there, whether it's lovely or horrible, it's definitely not biblical fellowship. It's just a poster room at best. We're not enjoying biblical fellowship. But when you gather in a small group, or as life groups as we call them at Sovereign Grace, genuine biblical fellowship does become possible. A small group of people that you can know and be known by. 
small group of people that you can apply God's word with into our lives. Actually take it and apply it and know the individual and help people apply it to their lives. And a small group where we can carry forth one another's of scripture, of which there are loads. Carry one another's burdens. What, everybody's? Better make a list. going to be difficult. No, no, some. Some people's. Carry one another's burdens. Rejoice together. Weep together. Counsel one another. Confess your sin to one another. The list goes on. Small groups help us to take this Bible seriously and all the one another's in it and say, let's do that. Let's bottle this and let's build this into our small group context. John Stott says it this way. He says, the value of small group is that it can become a community of related persons. And in it, the benefit of relatedness cannot be missed, nor its challenges evaded. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say, therefore, that small groups are indispensable for our growth into spiritual maturity. Amen to that. They're indispensable. So here's the question. Here's the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning as a local church and as individuals. Here's the question. If Sovereign Grace Church is so clearly a place built with small groups, then how are you and I going in playing our parts in building our small groups? If Sovereign Grace Church is so clearly a place built with small groups, then how am I and how are you going at actually playing your part in building your small group? See, it's so easy given the busyness of our city, to get distracted with so many different things. And it's so easy, I think, to lose perspective on what is my group even for? I don't get it. And before you know it, you're at best attending, sometimes not even attending at all. But what you're never doing is building, realizing I need this group of people in my life if I'm going to grow. The truth is they need me. I need to be here playing my part And so don't don't misunderstand, my friends. This message is not designed to be corrective in nature. Your faces look very sad. They don't need to look sad. This is not corrective in nature. I'm not bringing this thinking, oh my goodness, the life groups aren't working. The life groups are going great. And we're thrilled by all that the Lord is doing. And you excel in this. However, this is a pastor seeking to serve you and love you, not to correct, but to give you a moment of evaluation. So that you can ask yourself this question at the start of the year. Of how am I going in this? Am I an attender? Or am I a builder? Do I just tag along sometimes? Or am I there to build? Realizing there are biblical imperatives attached to this. That apply to me. And that I need to do for the glory of the Lord. Now, I'm aware that overarching question of wondering how am I going and playing my part in the building of my small group can be hard to get our hands around. So I've got four sub-questions that will help us a lot better that I encourage you then to discuss in your life group this week. And here's the first. Ask it for yourself. Try not to ask it of your group leader or the person that you really don't like in your group. Ask it for yourself. Number one, how am I going in actively playing my part in the care of my group? How are you going in there? It's not primarily the group leader's responsibility to care. It's everybody's. We're family. All care for one another. There is no mum and dad in the group. You're all just brothers and sisters. We all play a part. You know, if we're going to be builders and not mere attenders, then the way we position ourselves towards the group in terms of caring for others is of vital importance. 
Because you see, when you became a Christian, and when you became a person who was deciding to follow Christ, what you have to understand is part of following Christ is realizing that as an expression of following Christ, you personally are the hands and feet of Jesus in this church. Where is the body of Christ in the world? It's in the church. It's here. We're his body. John Piper says it this way. He says, the brethren of Jesus are the church. If you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. And if you love and show affection to the church, you show love and affection to Jesus. The church is his body. It is the physical form of his presence on earth. And so touch the church and you touch the very body of Christ. Jesus Christ then is still very present in the world today. Where? In his body. Where is Jesus in the world? He's here. Where is Jesus in your life group? Each other. We're called to be the body of Christ to one another. And as his body, care towards one another, in particular in a small group, becomes absolutely vital. It becomes so important. Because if we're not feeling and sensing Jesus in our small group, then where is it happening? We're one another's hands and feet of Jesus towards one another. We're the body of Christ. So where is he? He's in us. See, care in our culture, in Australia, I think is so often defined as sympathy and sentiment. If you care for somebody, and what that means is you offer them sympathy and you offer them sentiment. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's so awful. But care in the Bible goes beyond that. Care in the Bible is never defined as sympathy and sentiment. Care in the Bible is always defined as something visible and obvious. Something that you can go, that's care. Not just a feeling. So Romans 12, this is the word of God. Paul describes care. He says, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Listen, contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be conceited. See, the Bible has no context for, oh, that's so awful, what's that happening to that person? Oh, I feel really bad for them. Oh, well, I've got a lot to do myself. The Bible says, you know what, that's great that you feel that way. Well, realize you're family to them. And you're Jesus to them. So go love them. It should be tangible. You should be able to feel it. You should be able to observe it and see it for it to be true biblical care. You know, once upon a time, Emma and I lived in the United States while I was at Pastors College. And I remember hearing this story all the way back then in the year 2000 by a lady called Cindy Bedoris. Here's her story about her experience of this type of care in her life group or care groups as they call them. She says, my husband was diagnosed with a severe case of chronic fatigue syndrome in 1988 and has not been able to work since 1990. With each passing year, he has become worse and has gotten to the point where his life has no resemblance to normality as you and I know it. He cannot walk for more than three to four minutes at a time. 
and due to other difficulties has a very difficult time interacting with me or others. Bill lives with a tremendous amount of pain throughout his entire body and is always exhausted and weak, feeling like he has the flu. This past spring, he was very close to being bedridden and I needed to take close to seven weeks off to care for him. Bill and I have been part of the Merriman's group for over three years. They have excelled in caring for us. Over the years, I've been brought to tears on many occasions by their expressions of love and sacrificial ways they have demonstrated it. One couple provided us a large sum of money so that Bill could see a specialist in California. The care group has fasted and prayed for Bill and I for a week on two different occasions. They took up a collection for us and we were able to purchase a motorized scooter for Bill so that he could get around and do a few other things to improve his quality of life. During this recent leave of absence that I took to care for Bill, they provided numerous meals, coordinated meals from other care groups and ran many errands for us. I simply cannot thank God enough for my care group. Now, as you read that, you can't help but be provoked by her example, can you? You can't help but be provoked and think, I'd love to be in a group like that. I want to be in a group like that. And I thank God that, by God's grace, I think we have many, 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 many similar stories in this local church. Many things that we could point out and stand up and say, hey, this is what my group did for me. This is how they cared for me. And yet I still think it's worth us pausing for a moment and asking ourselves, how am I going in the care of my group? And maybe even a more pertinent question. If everybody tangibly cared for their group in the way that I did, then how good would my group be? If everybody in my group cares to the level that I do, is this going to be a great group? Or is this going to be a people that gather sometimes, to talk a bit about Jesus. Builders understand that I'm the hands and feet of Jesus to this group. So I need to care. Because God cares. And I've been assigned to be Jesus in this group, so I want to care. I want to be here with all my might and care for people. Builders care. That's not all. Builders also position themselves to grow. So that's the second question. How am I going in faithfully positioning myself to grow in my group. You know, one of my favorite pieces of scripture, particularly in the book of Ephesians, is chapter 4, verse 22 through to 24. I preached on it some time ago when we did the series on Ephesians, and I called it the divine changing room. Because that's what it is. It's a divine changing room. Paul takes us by the hand and explains to us the blueprint on how people change. How do people actually change? How do people become like Christ? This is what he says in verse 22. How do you do it? Well, here you do it. You need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former, former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love that. You know, one of the things we used to watch in the UK was Trini and Susanna. Did that ever come here? Oh, you poor things. You know, but you watch it now and again, and you just think, this is hilarious. You're totally slagging that woman off for the way she looks. And I don't blame you, but I wouldn't have wanted to say it, but it's great watching you say it. And so they'd go into people's closet, and they'd be like, oh, my goodness, this is awful. Let's throw it all away, and they get rid of all the stuff, and they take her in the changing room, and then they give her all this new stuff, and she looks lovely. That's what I think of when I come across Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. It's a divine changing room, though, not Trinity and Susanna. It is the changing room of the Lord. 
How do you change? How do you become more like Christ? There's three parts to it. You put off the old self, the parts that are not to do with Jesus, that are Gentile in nature, that are unbeliever, that used to be the wrong ways. Put it off. We're then renewed in the spirit of our minds as we stand in the changing room, looking to help God to help us. What's going on in my heart? Why do I respond the way I do? What is the Lord trying to teach me in this? And then we put on the new self. Put off lying, we put on truthfulness, so on and so forth. We, we work out what is going on. Now, I just think that is such a genius piece of Scripture, and yet what is so often missed in that passage is that chapter 4 comes after chapter 2. What that means is even the divine changing room of chapter 4 is in the context of community, chapter 2. It takes others. You're not meant to just clear off by yourself and, okay, I'll just go away and change. No. In the context of chapter 4, 5, and 6, we do all of these things in the context of community. My friends, if we're really going to grow, if we're really going to become more and more like Jesus Christ, then we're going to need each other for that too. And if we're honest, I think that can make us feel uncomfortable. I don't want to get changed in front of anybody. But if you're serious about growing, we have to. And I know for me in my life, the older I get and the longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm aware of the need for others in my life. So when it comes to putting off the old self, if you're like me, then you're blind to your sin most of the time. So what do you want to grow in? don't know. Doing all right? Sin blinds us. There's areas of our lives that we think we've got it all together, but, but we haven't. In fact, sometimes I even think it's just the way God made us, something like that, or just our personality. I'm just angry by personality. Oh, really? I didn't say that in my Bible. You know, Al Liam said the other week, he went, off, he went visiting his, his birth mum, and he said, uh, he said, Dad, I, I didn't listen to her today. I didn't respond to her. I said, well, that's not very good, Liam. You need to be listening to your mum and doing as you talk. No, Dad, I just didn't listen to her. I said, I know, you just told me that. You know, but Liam, you need to be listening to your mum. Dad, I just didn't listen to her. I didn't want to do it. I said, well, Liam, you, you, know, you want to be, if you're going to see your birth mum, then you need to do as you're told. He said, Dad, it's just the way God's made me. Straight up, five years old. We don't teach him much, but he's learned that. He thinks it's the way God's made him. God has just made me disobedient. What can I do? You know, we don't talk that way anymore. And we don't speak like that as adults. But I think so often we still believe it. This isn't sin. It's just my personality. What can I do? I can't help it if I'm loud and obnoxious. It's just the way I am. Really? Really? Looks to me in my Bible that that's part of the old self. Well, I just get angry. I'm just that type of person. I'm passionate. No, you're angry and sinful. And you need to be aware this is something that God wants you to take to the divine changing room so that you become more like Christ. You know, we need others in our lives to help us see some things sometimes. Things that sometimes we just think of personality, but in reality, they're not. C.J. Mahaney uses a wonderful illustration in his book on humility. And he talks about this newspaper article that he's reading. And the newspaper article is all about this guy, this businessman that's well-dressed. And he's in a coffee shop and he's drinking his cup of coffee. And as he leaves, everybody watches this guy that's well-dressed, a businessman suited up, because he's got a big dollop of cream cheese on his chin. And he walks out and he walks down the street with his briefcase. And the newspaper writer is simply saying, 
I wonder who's going to tell him. <laughs> Off he goes to work. Big dollar for cream cheese. Well, the reality is in our lives as Christians, we walk around with cream cheese on our face sometimes. And that's where by God's grace, we have to be Jesus to one another and speak the truth in love. I know I need that. Hey, have you considered that maybe your irritability and anger with your wife isn't just your personality, but it's sin before the Lord that he wants you to change? Hey, I've noticed that in group, you just bring up money a lot. Have you considered that maybe you're anxious about money and fearful about that? Maybe not really applying the gospel of grace that God has you and he's faithful to that? Listen, we don't know the answer to people's heart issues. No one knows what's going on in your heart apart from you and the Lord. And often it's not even you, it's just the Lord. But I think where we're being faithful, we need to ask people questions. Otherwise, we'll all be walking around with cream cheese on our face and no one wants to say. But everybody sees it. I need people and I'm grateful that I have people in my life. My wife leads the line on this and then the brothers that I serve with in the pastoral team lead the line on this. People that are willing to say, hey, can I ask you a question? I love you, man. Can I ask you? Wouldn't it be great to be in a church where we're not just waiting for people to ask but we're saying, listen, help me see where may there be cream cheese on my face. I've walked with you guys in my life group for the last year. You see me, you see the way I am with my wife, you see the way I am in my life. Is there anything, anything that you would perceive I need to change? In? We need others to help us with the putting off the old self. We need others to help us be renewed in our minds. So often I cannot see my heart in a situation. I can't. I can see the fruit, but I can't see what's really going on. But it's when others ask questions and say, hey, have you considered? Maybe this is anxiety. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you've made an idol out of this. It's so helpful to work out what's going on in my heart. And to put on the new self, the truth is that takes energy and help too. Because so often when you've dealt with sin like you have in my life, to change it in a moment is not going to be very easy because they're well-trodden paths of sin. We need others to pray for us and hold us accountable. Hey, how are you going? Are you still reading your Bible this week? Are you still reading your Bible? Keep going. Let's keep doing this. If we're really going to grow, my friends, we need others. And I'm aware, even as I say this, some of you are going to be thinking, this is so uncomfortable. We should be more uncomfortable about our sin than we are uncomfortable about discussing it with people. We've been called to pursue a holy calling. We've been called to pursue Christ. So we need others. Builders understand that. Builders understand that they need to care. Builders understand that they need to grow and help others grow. That's not all. Builders also understand how much their words matter. Question three. How am I going in consistently being aware of how much my words matter to my group? How am I going in consistently being aware of how much my words matter to my group? Listen, this is how much words matter in the context of Scripture. This is what the Scripture talks about. James 1 verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 3 verse 4 through 6. Look at the ships. Though they are, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder 
wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among its members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. All those words, 25,000 of them every day, Time magazine tells us, they have the ability, as Proverbs 18.21 says, to either bring death or life, for death and life are in the power of the tongue. They're powerful. They can set things ablaze for good. They can set things ablaze for negative. Our words matter. According to Scripture, our words matter. According to God, our words matter. And according to our groups, for them to flourish, our words matter there as well. Now, the answer isn't therefore, you know what, you're right, Dave. I'm going to go to group and never say anything ever again. Negative. Our words matter. We've just got to use them. We've got to use them for the glory of the Lord. And Ephesians 4.29 tells us how. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I love the Greek in this. In verse 29, when he says, let no, that word no is not just no, it's no! It's like that. That's what it is. It comes with great force in the way it's written. It's, 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 he's emphasizing it. Do not do this. You will tear your church apart. You will ruin your church if you allow corrupting talk to come out of your mouth. It will be detrimental. It will be destructive. It will be divisive. So let no corruptive talk come out of your mouth. But only let it build up. Let it strengthen those around you. Let it build up those around you. Let it encourage. You know, this is genius from the Lord. When you see the way he has designed the local church, when you see the way he has designed the body to operate, you realize his great plan for the church is a genius. Because here's the way he's planned it. Just track with me. We are told in Scripture that God is always at work in the life of a believer. Always. Philippians 1 verse 6 says it. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? He's going to do it. He's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. He will be working for the good of all those who are in Jesus Christ. He's always at work. He's ever-present. Always with you in every way. However, in our humanity, so often, in our moment of need, we are totally unaware of his nearness, aren't we? We just can't see it. We, we can't figure out where he is. So in the midst of suffering, so easily we lose sight of the Lord. We start to struggle with sin. And so easily we lose hope. We find ourselves battling with condemnation over past sin as we seek to grow. And so easily we lose sight of the cross. And when we're tired and wearisome, so easily we begin to lose perspective. So what does he do? He puts others in our lives with words that can bring grace to the hearer when we need it most. He brings others into our lives that can bring comforting grace to the one who is suffering who can bring sanctifying grace to the one who is struggling with present sin, who can bring justifying grace to the one who is struggling with past sin, who can bring sustaining grace to the one who is weary, 
God in his grace designs it so that, yes, you're going to struggle by yourself. But in the context of community, I will bring others into your path that will bring a word in season that will help you and give grace to the hearer in that moment. See, when we're struggling, the last thing we should do is decide, hey, I just need a bit of time out of group and church for a while. It's the common temptation, but the Bible would say, no, are you crazy? When you're struggling and you're finding things hard, you need those around you more than you ever realized because they'll be Christ to you. They'll be Jesus to you. They'll bring his words to you that will strengthen you and help you and aid you. My friends, builders understand that our words matter. They can give grace to the hearer. And don't you think how much more of an opportunity group becomes when you realize, I'm not just going to attend, but God could use my words tonight to encourage others, to comfort people, to encourage people, to strengthen people. Hey, I need to be there not just for me. I need to be there for them. I need to go and serve and build. Somebody may need comforting grace tonight, and I want to be the person to give it. I want to help them. Builders understand that. Number four, final question. How am I going in being ongoingly committed to my group? How am I going in being ongoingly committed to my group? You know, just recently I've been studying in my own quiet times the book of Hebrews. And man, it is a quality book. I've read it several times, but for some reason this time, I just this book is amazing. In chapters 1 through 9, the author of Hebrews focuses on the personal work of Jesus Christ as the great high priest who shed his own blood to redeem us from our sin and win our access to the Father's presence. He just continues to bang on and on and on about how great Jesus is, how he's greater than everything you could have ever imagined and how he's come to die so that you may have access to the Father again. And then in chapter 10, the author takes a very deliberate turn in the book and begins then to focus on the implications of what Jesus has done for us. What it means. In light of all this, this is what it means. And when I came to chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, I had one of those moments where it feels like it's leaping out of the page. Have you ever had that? It's like a pop-up book all of a sudden. You're just like, this, what is this? Where has this been all my life? This is the words I read in light that I knew that I was going to be giving this message. <laughs> These are the words. Listen. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised us is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Man, that came alive to me as I read that a few weeks ago. You know, the Bible is clear that we need to be together. Why? Because we need to be there to stir one another up to love and good works. If we're going to truly live for Christ, if we're going to live in a manner worthy of the calling received, then we need to be there to stir one another up, even more so as we see the day drawing near. The reality is our sin and our world will always seek to pull us away from the Lord. It will seek to distract us. It will seek to pull us away. It will seek to help us think that this is really isn't that important. But this writer is saying, hang on a minute. The day is drawing near, as Jesse was pointing out in the worship, when Jesus will return. The day will draw near when he will return and we will be with him for all times. And so let's not get distracted by the world, 
but meet together and stir one another up to love and good deeds. Remind one another, this world isn't what it's all about. Heaven is what it's all about. And do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. That jumped out at me as I read that. How much we need one another, but it isn't the only thing that jumped out to me. What also jumped out at me afresh is how there really isn't anything new under the sun, is there? This is first century Christianity. Jesus Christ has barely died and rose again and been with the Father. And already this writer is saying, hey, and don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. See, we can think, well, we're just much busier now. 2,000 years on, we have a lot on. They had a lot on in first century as well. There was many, many things that would distract them away from meeting together. Many things, hey, you know, we've got kids. There's stuff on with the kids. I've got stuff we need to get done and there's opportunities for the kids. We've just got to do it. And my work's just real busy at the moment, man. It, it, it's hard. And To be honest, this week, we're just tired. We've been out farming the fields all day and we've got in and it's late and I'm just exhausted. I, I don't want that. This author is saying, listen, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some why because you need each other if you're going to not get distracted with the world if you're not going to get pulled away by the evil one if you're going to actually truly live for christ then we need one another so that we can care for one another so that we can encourage one another so that we can grow with one another so that we can stir one another up to love and good deeds so that we can encourage one another to live for jesus we need one another So don't neglect meeting together. You know, in this area of my life, I would say this is something that I'm so grateful for my dad in, and my dad's example. Because growing up, if there's one thing my dad was, he was a true Englishman, and so there was a line and no further, and this was it. And when it came to attending Sunday mornings and life groups, this was it. As for me and my house, we're doing this. So unless we're away or dying, we're there. And as a kid, you just think, you know, is there not anything else we could do? I, I got quite good at hockey, so I played for the county at hockey. I once had England trials, I wasn't good enough to do that. Didn't play for them, but I played for the county. And, you know, they moved the fixtures to Sunday morning. I said, Dad, they moved it to Sunday morning. He said, oh, that's such a shame you won't be able to go. And that was the way we were brought up. Son, Jesus is everything. His bride as it gathers is, is everything. You know, different people would have parties on a Sunday morning. Oh, such a shame you won't be able to go. Maybe we could have them over another time. It was just a, it was a non-negotiable thing in our house. That as for us, this is what we do. And so life groups, they weren't just an add-on extra of the week. They were the first thing in my dad's calendar. It was just like, well, we, we do home group and we do church. We're building this way as a family. So kids, oh, Auntie Ethel has got a party on that night. Oh, we need to tell her we won't be able to go. Maybe we could do something with her another time. That's the way I grew up. And I'm so grateful that I saw that. I'm so grateful that that was my example because it's something that I inherited in later years, that just this is what we do. But my dad understood this scripture. How easy and how tempting it will be to get pulled into the world, pulled into so many different things. So let's not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. My friends, builders like my dad, I think, operate like that. They commit to their group. So unless they're dying or away, They're there because they understand that if you truly want to live for Jesus, quite simply, you need each other. 
We all do. If we actually want to live for Jesus, then the people that are in your group and the people that sit around you today, you need them. You need them in your life. It's like that fan heater at Christchurch trying to do everything by itself. It can't be done. And so too the Christian walk takes place. You can't do it by yourself. And so I want to encourage you then, as you look out at the year ahead, as you consider the year to come, be committed to your group. Be committed to the faces you see around you. Listen, if for some reason you don't feel your group is working, which happens sometimes, come and talk to us. We don't. Your, your life group isn't like a blood covenant, okay? It's not like, but I've been assigned to this group, I'm going to be here forever! No. If you don't feel that it's working, if you're trying to care, you're trying to encourage, you're trying to build this, just come and let us know. We want to talk to you about that. Maybe there's something we can do. We want this to be real for people. But where you have a group and you think, no, this, this can be done there. I've just nearly not been going or not really caring. I've just, I consider I've got a lot on. Everybody's got a lot on, okay? But if we're truly going to make this work, be committed to your group. Give yourself to it. And go there to care. Go there to encourage. Go there to grow. Go there to guard. Go there to fan into flame with love and good works what people are doing in their lives. That will bring grace to us all. That's what they're designed to do. So let it be our story. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you that you have saved us into the context of community. You haven't designed us just to shake your hand upon salvation and then go on our merry way and seek to win people for Jesus. No, you've given us family, even as brothers and sisters, fellow citizens, members of the household of God to do life with. And so, Lord, as we consider then our groups for this year, would you help us to really give ourselves there? Give ourselves not to the methodology, but give ourselves to the faces we see in the group. Being aware that I need them and they need me. So would we be there? And would we care? And would we encourage and would we grow? And would all glory go to you? In Jesus' name, amen.